This podcast is brought to you by AMS Neve. For world-class recordings, it has to be Neve. No question. Learn more at amsneve.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Daniel Lanois' career reads like an enviable work of fantasy. From his early work with Brian Eno and Harold Budd on their genre-defining ambient works, pivotal roles in U2's classic Unforgettable Fire, Joshua Tree, and Akung Baby, and to his work with Bob Dylan, Emmylou Harris, Willie Nelson, Aaron Neville, and of course his body of work as a band leader and solo artist, Daniel Lanois has continued to look forward and stay inspired by being at once a master and a student of his craft. His latest release, Daniel Lanois Venetian Snares, a collaboration with Aaron Funk, keeps the tradition of not just pushing, but ignoring boundaries. Online editor Jeff Stanfield caught up with Daniel to discuss this latest release and what's happened since we last interviewed Daniel back in Tape Op issue 37. This audio recording was not originally tracked with the intent of using for a podcast. It was recorded solely for transcription for our print interview. Please forgive any balance issues, background sounds, or lack of clarity. Enjoy. Hey, Daniel, thanks for being here. Uh, you have a new record with Venetian Snares, and I was uh, curious how that collaboration came together. Yeah, a, friend, a mutual friend um, introduced me to Venetian Snares music about seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was a master at uh, his thing. And uh, then he did a show in Toronto about two years back, and I went to hear him. It sounded really great. And we met after, and there was a bit of a hang at my studio in Toronto, and we started jamming. Mm-hmm. And uh, out of one jam came a lot of material. So I said, well, why don't we keep going here and see if we've got a record? And so it was that simple. It, not a lot of words were spoken. We just went on and started playing together. Much of what you hear is based on uh, jams and ad-libs that I then went into and, um, uh, to emphasize the more thematic moments and so on. So that, that's the basis of the exchange. So how does what Aaron brings to the table reframe what you do? Well, uh, I wouldn't have thought it was... a. Uh, uh, any kind of a formula that's operated by, I mean, uh, his thing is so far out and, and, and so far away from what I do. Um, but it seemed to be a welcome mat available from Aaron. That's his name, Aaron Funk. Yeah. That, that allowed um, the more gospel part of what I do to um, be part of the magic carpet ride here. You know, I think the we managed to, uh, I hope we managed to succeed in a few spots where um, two different forces come together to be stronger than what they would be in isolation. Mm. Now, your past few records have been really focused around the pedal steel, uh, very lush, very beautiful at times. Um, when I listen to them, I, it sort of reminds me of, uh, of a utopia, They're very transportive. And now you've got this guy who's like a cold, hard slap of reality. It's uh, it's very contemporary and contextualized in a way that's uh, current of the times, a uh, reflection of all the madness in the world. Well, it's you're not too far off. It's, 
that's how I started looking at it, uh, you know, as Aaron was introducing these angular uh, injections, you know, mm-hmm. into, into the beauty of what I do. So I have no choice at a certain point just to follow his conducting. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think of him as, a, as my conductor. <laughs> and uh, so the, uh, it's jagged, it's exciting, it's arresting, and it's not anything that you would put on to have the... Uh, you know, uh, something in the background to uh, <laughs> to do the dishes by. You, you definitely want to put on this record if you're looking to have something shaken up in you emotionally. So that's. I mean, it's the job of art, isn't it? I mean, I, I love Barry White. Can't get enough of your love, baby. That's great, and I welcome it. But this is not. This is like we've got we've got a little too much of something here, and a little, I'm, I'm ready to stop myself in my tracks and maybe a couple listeners as well so they agree with us you know so it's meant to be angular and there's meant to be some bottled up emotions and some anger and, and uh you know uh, mistrust and and um, not believing in the thing anymore and, and just pushing the envelope to the to the point of where i imagine jazz players uh, got to in the 50s you know when they splintered away from big band and they were angry young men and and uh, you know, spawn the likes of Elvin Jones and Coltrane and Miles and people like that that were you know, the last uh, standing members of civil rights, and they 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 were the best on their instruments, and they wanted to shatter the mold and take music to another dimension. That was the responsibility they took on. I'm not suggesting we're we're Elvin Jones and Coltrane here, but I. I'm driven by similar values in the sense that we're looking for something break beyond familiar um, prescription. Yeah, well, it's certainly there. Uh, it's a jazz record in so many ways. Um, it's voiced differently, but like you said, it comes out of improvisation. I mean, ultimately, I think what those guys brought is that they had mastery of their instruments, so they were able to have conversations that were complex and in-depth you know, just like uh, two smart, educated people would on any topic. And to be able to turn the corner and go in a different direction at the drop of a hat based on someone else's cue, I, I get a lot of that from this record and your music in uh, many ways, uh, especially on Flesh and Machine. Do you see the similarities, and what are some of the differences between those two projects? Yeah. I, I see this as part of a trilogy uh Working backwards, I did a, made a nice record with Rocco DeLuca called yeah. Goodbyes of Language. It's all steel guitar, and then Flesh and Machine prior to that, and now this record with Venetian Snares. So I see this as a little chapter of time. Um, and I've seen these before, you know, when I first went to New Orleans, we did a, made a Dylan record, a Neville Brothers record, and then a solo record of mine. They belong as a little grouping. And I think the what's sweet about groupings is you get a philosophical spillover from one to the other. And as long as the one is has its integrity intact, then that's the kind of spilling you want to be operating by. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I'll make another record that's you know, as steel guitar driven as as this and goodbye to language, but I believe they that belong together as a grouping. Oh, agreed. Um, can you talk a little bit about the physical setup? Yes. I, well, from the audience's perspective, I think uh, a profile, uh, if they can be looking at uh, the two artists, in, in the case of Aaron and I, in profile, that's okay. 
is you get to see what we're doing a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aside, um, proximity has been a friend to me. The closer people are together as players, the better they play. Um, and so the we're just taking advantage of the fact that that's how we sit in this recording studio. And so we thought, well, let's do the same thing live so we're not suddenly uh, looking in different directions and losing that communication power that we've built in the studio. So it's really, it was Aaron's suggestion, actually. He said, well, why don't we stay sitting down and uh, pick what we have in the studio and bring it to the stage. Mm-hmm. So with something like breakcore, you know, one of Aaron's genres, uh, were you drawn to that because it was something that was so out of your wheelhouse? Well, that's part of it. You know, I realized that Aaron knew a lot that I didn't know much about. Um, um, but specifics of break chorus hide, um, you know, that's, that's a little bit of time ago and we're trying to, um, bring what it is of that, that we appreciate and admire and bring it into this body of work. What I do like about break core and what Aaron's up to uh, in these times is, is very high fidelity in his sounds. Um, so there may be times when I get a little murky with my steel guitar because steel guitar comes through an old Fender amp, so you're never going to get that kind of sparkle, you know, that seemingly tiny computer speakers and buds uh, like to generate. So I'm happy to be in the company of somebody who's taking care of the high-frequency details and also that great hip-hop bottom. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my favorite colors in in hip-hop and in reggae, you know, no matter what speaker you hear uh, Bob Marley on, there's always that something sweet at the top. Um, and so we we are afforded that luxury on this record. So I thank Aaron for introducing me to nonstop fidelity, even though I might get murky. <laughs> <laughs> I was fortunate enough to spend some time with uh, Lee Scratch Perry recently. I know dub music has been a pretty big influence uh, to you forever in terms of your approach to mixing and sort of deconstructing mixes and sounds and building them back up. Was that also part of the way that you guys made this record? Oh, I'm glad you brought up Lee Scratch Perry because he's a hero to all of us for uh, his for his innovation. Um, I do dubs, uh, but as you know, I've, you know we 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 talked about my technique. You know, the Lee Scratch dubs are a little further out and are based in the uh, triplet echo tradition, which we all love. Uh, my thing is extrapolate, manipulate, and stick back in. So it's it's not a very good live technique that I have, <laughs> something that I do in the studio. Um, but um, uh, we love Lee Scratch Perry. I've sat with Lee Scratch Perry in a nighttime bar in Nick Grill. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if I could use the word proximity one more time. By proximity, I felt that the master had spoken. And... Uh, and let's say student Lanois now gets to go off and hopefully find his own voice within that, that kind of brave heart and courageous. You know, he's done so much. So he can be as far out as he wants. The further out, the better, I think, because I don't want to know his technique. I just want to feel his spirit. And what a spirit it is. Uh, you've done a lot of records in non-traditional spaces, and this was another of them. 
Uh, my understanding is that you did this in a Buddhist temple that had been uh, converted into a studio. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how location adds to the end result? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we try and pick um, fascinating locations. Um, music can be made in all kinds of places now, as we all know. You, know, you can make a record in, in the bathroom of an airplane with the right computer. <laughs> yeah. Port- portable uh, battery operated Ableton, and off you go. Um, but in this case, uh, I wanted a shop in Toronto because I didn't want studio in my apartment anymore. This Buddhist temple came up. The monks were moving out, and I felt that there was a obviously a spirit on the walls, and, and so that's it. It's in an old Polish neighborhood of Toronto. Um, family-run businesses around the corner, and so we liked it, uh, the life and blood that has come before us here, and certainly by by the the poles and the monks. <laughs> um, so it's a nice neighborhood, and I, I feel uh, that I'm part of a community here. So that goes a long way. Um, it doesn't mean to say that we, you know, we not might not go to some hidden mountain in Tibet to make the next one, but this has served us pretty well for now. Are you based in Toronto now more permanently, or is this just a fresh environment after being in Silver Lake for so long? Well, I wish I could tell you that, you know, uh, I was planted in any specific place for any length of time. I've just been, I try, but I keep moving. (laughs) Um, The Silver Lake studio uh, had nothing to do with this record. As we thought, well, we're both Canadian. Maybe we'll we'll do something in Canada this time around. Right. I still love the Silver Lake studio, even though I'm hardly there. But I was there a few weeks ago. We had a productive session unrelated to Aaron Fogg. I did a nice session with a couple of buddies, uh, Brian Blade, and then Chris Thomas, Chris's bass player, works for Brian. And I wanted more of that Mississippi River sound. As well as grew up on the Mississippi. So uh, it was really my way of paying respect to the past, my past in the South and so much that I learned from, from America and the South. And to this day, I can never say enough about it. And lucky for me, I was able to provide a Grammy Award to a couple of national treasures, Bob Dylan being one of them. So I, I feel like I've done my duty as a Canadian uh, visitor. <laughs> but, uh, hey man, these are pretty interesting times. You know, these are universal times and, and I'm not talking about universal publishing as spirits you know we there's so much crossing that's going on cross-pollination and and uh it's a great time to be alive great time to be music doing music because you know you can i can carry an entire multi-track and a pipe clip uh size drive now and they don't bother me at customs the way they used to when i carry two in a day <laughs> ain't that the truth obviously you've had this incredible career as a producer and you've also been uh, incredibly prolific as an artist and performer. And how do you reconcile those two things? Are you able to take one hat off and put another on, or are they the same thing to you? Uh, where are you finding what you're bringing to the project, and how does it present itself? Well, back in the day, let's say in the 80s, it was the boxes were even more uh, segregated. You know, I was either producing a record and making a record of my own, but What's happened with recording equipment and uh, live is, is living a lot closer to the studio now, so it's all mixing together. And I'm kind of glad that it happened the way it did. 
Um, but in these in these fast times, you know, we could quickly switch hats. Um, and I'm enjoying collaboration, um, as is the case here with Venetian Snares. Um, there was a time when I might have produced a record for someone like like Aaron, but now I'm involved creatively with it, uh, and we take it to the stage. So I like that um, these fast times have taken me uh, far away from being a wallflower. <laughs> I can I can quickly uh, set up a tour, and off we go. We hit the stage, and we bring our wares to the stage. Um, I think it's keeping it real in fast times for me. Um, I like um, the challenge of, uh, of playing live and the responsibility that we have to make it work live. Uh, what's cool about this thing I'm doing with Aaron is we sound good live because um, his thing is so rock solid. And, and uh, the, the bigger the PA, the, the, the more magnificent his thing sounds. Yeah. The line level is really, really punchy. Reminds me of some of the uh, King Sadi. King Sunny Day shows that I saw when I was a kid, you know, where the talking drums were like cannons coming out of the PA. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so when Aaron hits his thing, man, oh, the place rocks, and I got to keep up with him. Plus, he takes a beat off my steel guitar and he starts sampling me and, and manipulating my sound right on stage. I got, <laughs> I got no choice but to follow my new conductor. Some of this. Some of, this, some of this is thrilling to me. That I hadn't felt that feeling since I was a kid. My first psychedelic band, you know, that that loss of control where the, the sound takes over and it it, it decides where where you're going to be going next. Yeah. It must be liberating for you when you're often tasked with being the boss in uh, most situations. Um, so whether it be Aaron leading the charge or the music taking over, uh, it's got to be a pretty liberating and exciting feeling. Well, I'm pretty used to being the boss as a secretary treasurer. Uh, and now I like the, I like the feeling of being muscled me and send me to the stage and electrocute me and see what happens. <laughs> so how do you stay inspired? You've done so many great records and worked with so many great people. Um, obviously, you're able to draw from each of those and learn from them and take them to the next thing. But I'm curious, for somebody that has such great output and is doing so many different projects right and left, I'm curious how you're constantly able to keep it fresh. Well, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought this up because it's necessary to stay inspired. You know, I've bumped into folks that made popular records back in the day and stopped making records because they say, well, why should we even make records? Records don't sell and nobody cares anyhow and all this. And it would all be true, except that that's not a good sign of being inspired. Uh, how can you not be inspired? How could you not be inspired by life and um, and music for that matter? You know, there might be a bunch of stuff on on the radio that makes you angry, and you want to make better music. Well, that's and that's a bizarre inspiration, but nonetheless an inspiration. Um, could I diplomatically say that I've not been tamed by duty? I've not. My kid's grown up. He's in his 30s, so I don't have to be changing any diapers or going to any kind of class reunions or any crazy <laughs> shit. But all my other friends have to, oh, i got to take Rita to, uh, to, to um, you know, basketball lesson or something. So um, I'm a free spirit, and I'm as single as I've ever been, and uh, I gave up a lot domestically, but my... Uh, my devotion to my craft and my skills has never wavered. So I like to think that I'm doing some of my best work, consequently. 
I asked Larry if he wanted me to ask you anything, and he said to ask you about starving yourself with cheap monitors on the uh, Peter Gabriel show record. <laughs> well, well, it's pretty... Uh, I've told the story a few times. Um, Peter had uh, a set of ore tones on the console, and I didn't think that was enough. We found these uh, Radio Shack speakers in the back. They were copies of a German speaker called Little David's. A very um, kind of high-powered little self-powered speakers at the time, called Little David's. So I fished these Radio Shack speakers out of the closet and just strapped them onto the Ortones. We just jumped the wires from the Ortones to that. So I was running Ortones and Radio Shack speakers, <laughs> uh, and those were my near fields. And then um, Peter had a, just a pair of Tannoy uh, Gold Lockwoods laying around and. I brought those as close to the console as possible, sitting in the, like just behind the console, up on uh, stands, and that was it. Um, and that served us very well, you know. The uh, and we've had good results along the way with um, unorthodox monitoring systems. Um, but what's nice about both of these uh, rigs is there were no subs. Um, people didn't use subs so much back then. And so um, it forced me to mix a little quieter because, you know, you're not going to blaze a nice set of old Lockwood Golds because you're going to break them. Um, and so it set, just, it set a certain kind of uh, um, direction for how we're monitoring and working. So that's it, man. You know, the um, if you know your speakers, it doesn't really matter what they are. Uh, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone, but it seemed to work for us at the time and putting us at a slight disadvantage. You know, who would mix a record on Radio Shack speakers? <laughs> but it worked out all right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the way it works with monitors, whatever the monitor doesn't give you, that's what you put into the mix. So if you if your monitor has no top end, you're going to put more top end so that you get to hear it. And then in the end, it's like, whoa, it's nice and bright, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about limitations in general? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. Limitations are good. Um, limitations by skill are um, pretty obvious. You know, maybe you're excited about a certain approach and just get good at something for a while. Um, you know, you might be excited about harmony vocal arrangements. And so that's what you do for a while. That's what I would do. Um, but in regards to... Uh, Processing and, and effects in the studio. I usually uh, have only three boxes going. Uh, whatever, whatever I'm excited about at a given time, be it you know some of those old school AMS harmonizers I have, prime time, uh, what's on prime time, and then I use uh, what's the third box I use? I'll use a more modern box, you know, maybe some kind of Eventide snazzy thing that's got. 200 sounds and I use two <laughs> and then you know I, I, I do what I've always done I feed one effect into the other and then back to the first and maybe over to the third and by introducing uh, unexpected modulations uh, you pick up a little bit of humanity along the way you know the uh, more opera like voices and as as always if I'm lucky enough to hit on a sound that I'm excited about with uh, what I just described. Then I try and print it because the um, 
you know, because I don't use plugins, um, so it means that it makes it harder to get back to things that might have a, you know, a complicated chain of regeneration and so on. So if I bump into something that's cool, I print it, and then I've got it. I just bring up those tracks as special effects tracks when I mix. It seems like over the last decade, you focused on doing your own projects rather than being heavy into the producer world. Um, how would you look back on that chapter? And secondarily, how do you choose what to do next in terms of people approaching you? Yeah. Well, looking back at records I made you know, since I was a kid, there's so many. It kind of brings me to tears the amount of time I've spent in the chair. Um, I, don't, it's, I don't know if I could ever do that again. It was an absurdity of devotion. Um, a lot of records I made people don't know about when I was a kid. You know, I've I probably made thousands, been involved with thousands of albums. Some of them were one day, two days in the studio, you get an album, you know, gospel records and so on. Um, and um, I was just programmed to work that way as a kid. I was a work dog and had my own studio. And I wasn't really in a, in a geographical location where there was that much going on. So I just did more and more of, regular daily work. I was looking at it as a, as a day job almost, you know. Uh, and uh, to be honest with you, uh, I'm glad I made the records I made, you know, with some pretty smart artists in the 80s and the 90s and all that, including Dylan. And But I don't know if I could be that person ever again because um, I belong to a certain chapter of my life. There were several chapters back then. But I love music more than ever. Um, I don't know that I can get in the hot seat for two years in a row ever again, unless it's you know a collaborative record. I might consider that, but um, that might uh, that kind of. And I see younger younger producers, you know, that have uh, the same spirit that I had when I was a kid, and I wish them the best, you know. And it, and um, and I meet them along the way, and I. Uh, super smart people with new technique and blah 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 and you know a lot of great pop record makers which you know, I've been meeting a few of those folks in LA these days and they don't want to touch anything and it's not going to be a hit you know this um, I don't know if I love the music all that much but I admire that they would take that position you know uh, part of me wants to you know make a hit with Rihanna <laughs> probably be good one too yeah, man, uh, I've got a couple of tracks on the go. Maybe I'll give her a call. You know, I think she's a great singer. You've mentioned several times over this conversation the word gospel. You even mentioned that this new record allows you to access the gospel side of your playing. I have to say that it doesn't sound to me what I think about when I hear the word gospel. So I was curious what your definition of that is and what that means to you. Well, I guess the term gospel has evolved considerably, at least in my mind. Although I play in a gospel band with Brian Blade uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, we play in a band called the Hallelujah Train, and that's his father's band. His father, Brian's father, is a great uh, singing pastor. <laughs> so we're, we're regrouping in September, knock on a couple of shows. So I, I have my foot in the, uh, in the Zion Baptist Church music, <laughs> the Hallelujah Train. That aside, it's a loosely used term. Um, I use it loosely uh, to suggest that, um, you know, so, uh, the steel guitar takes me to that place of him, 
or a conventional uh, melody that you know we might hear uh, as an Appalachian melody or all Irish melodies. So the that part of me that can go those kind of melodies, those guttural uh, country melodies, you know, that come from farms and, and uh, uh, songs, from, uh, vagabond songs, from people who travel and who questioning life and wondering uh, what secrets uh, the universe might hold and all that. So the the that part of us uh, as artists that question and questioning is necessary for evolution to even happen lives on in me, lives on in tradition, but lives on in, in, in wanting more than just melodies from the past or traditional um, ways. I respect tradition, especially if it gives me access to the future. Um, but anyhow, the gospel thing is alive. Uh, I'm using it as a loose term for something that's grounded and has uh, ancient emotions still uh, tangled up in there somewhere. Well, thanks for your time, Daniel. It's great to catch up with you again, and uh, hope we can uh, do it again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.